well, just I have uh, just uh, several more announcements. Just, you know, we're going to end our service this morning. Andy's going to sing a solo. We're going to be a smith. Just our aim of that is try to, try to help put the word in your mind as, as you leave. Um, financial Bible studies meeting Saturday night. Um, it's right there in the bulletin if you're involved with that. It's a great chance just to equip kids. Also, flocks tonight uh, are starting from our Sunday night flocks. And uh, just, just to tell you, our aim in these flocks are maybe different than the past. We're not going to cover them a lot of material during the flocks, though there will be some. The aim is mostly accountability. Are you applying the, the truths taught in the Sunday morning sermons to your life? And um, there's lots of potential for application tonight. So I'll allude to that a little bit, but that, that will take, take place. I want to open this, this morning by telling you a story. About May 1st, 1991, some of you may have heard this story before. May 1st, 1991, it's a long time ago. Some of you weren't even born. Nathan, you're, you weren't even born then, I'm sure. Two significant milestones in baseball were reached almost simultaneously. Now the way two athletes responded brought comments from scores of sports writers and provided a lesson on both ends of the humility spectrum. The first was Ricky Henderson. You remember what Ricky Henderson did that night? Any sports buffs? What? He stole his 940th stolen base. And when he stole stole that base, he immediately pulled the base up from its anchor, held it overhead like a hero's booty. Brock, he broke Lou Brock's record, long-standing. And Lou Brock had traveled across the country to see him there, I think it was in Oakland, to see when his record was broken. And he congratulated Henderson, who then turned around and proclaimed, Lou Brock was a great baseball stealer, but today I am the greatest of all time. One major league player commented, it made me want to puke. Half a continent away, in Texas, Nolan Ryan of the Texas Rangers spent the evening pitching a no-hitter. How many no-hitters did Nolan Ryan preach, pitch in his career? Remember? Sports bus? Yes, Conrad. Seven, you got it exactly right. <laughs> Wonderful. Seven no-hitters. This is his last one. He's 44 years old. And uh, when the last fastball was thrown, final batter went down swinging. Ryan simply smiled and began making his way to his catcher to congratulate him on a game well played. As his fellow players mobbed him, the crowd cheered. Ryan almost looked embarrassed by all of the fuss. He then said that he was most happy for his hometown fans and for his team. What a difference, right? And then Wayne House and Kenneth Durham comment in their book from which I just read straight from you. says, It is arguable whether one athletic feat can overshadow another. What is certain, however, is that humility always upstages pride. Humility always upstages pride. In our study of 1 Peter this morning, we come to a a passage of Scripture that addresses the issue of pride and humility. And my prayer this morning is that all of us might learn the lesson that humility always upstages pride. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Last week we looked at uh, verses 1-4, through 4, which addressed the elders to the church, how they, is that they ought to relate. Remember I had three points last week, how elders are to demonstrate humility. Not as lording it over people, but being as a fellow elder among them. Not as demanding their authority, but as gaining it through their example. And elders were secondly to shepherd the flock, as verse 2 says. Willingly and sacrificially and lovingly, completely giving themselves to the work. And thirdly, elders were to remember the reward set before them when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. And, and then with verse 5, Peter's audience is going to change. Whereas the first four verses were directed to the elders, verses 5 and 6 and 7 expand. Verse 5, you can see, begins to address the younger men. Particularly how they relate to the elders. And then in the middle of verse 5, you can see it says, all of you. So it's not just the young men. All of a sudden it expands to all of us. Old or young. 
So this morning, these words, unlike last week, are going to be directly applicable to all of you. Okay? Whether it's Alicia, or whether it's David, or whether it's Spencer, or Melissa, or Sean. All of us. It's applicable to all of us this morning. Last week, my message was entitled, Counsel to Shepherds, because it was dealing with shepherds, and appropriately, my title this morning is Counsel to the Flock. It deals with everybody here. Let's read our text. And as I read this, I have an assignment for you. I want you to look for how many times humility is mentioned. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. All right, how many times did Peter mention humility in these verses? Yes, Nathan, how many times? One. Um, close. He did mention it once, but he mentioned a little bit more than that. Who's got one? Yeah, Jared, what do you got? Three times. Exactly right. Three times. Twice there in verse 5 and once in verse 6. So you can see here that this, this text is all about humility, but, but it's interesting. It goes, it goes beyond even the mere mention of the word humility because almost every phrase in here is talking about humility in one way, form, or another. I mean, you can see it right there in verse 5 when the the call to younger men is to be subject to your elders. The act of submission is a display of humility. When you set the agenda of others, it's more important than yourself and you bow to what they would have you to do. That's humility. You can see humility also here in verse 6 with a mention of the word pride. Pride and humility are opposite. So as he is telling us to avoid pride, he is calling us to pursue humility at the same time. You can also see it there in verse 7, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Casting your anxiety upon God is a demonstration of humility. Saying, God, I can't handle these things on my own. Uh, you need to take them. I'm not sufficient in myself. You take them. I give them to you. That's an expression of humility confessing your own weakness. And so the concept of humility pervades this entire text. And it is interesting also to notice how how Peter's progression of thought progresses through these words as well. Verse 5 is addressed particularly to the younger men. And then all of a sudden it expands to how they should relate to elders. And then it expands to all of us how we should relate to each other. And then casting all your anxiety upon Him, how all of us should relate to God. So first it's relating to the the elders of the church, and then it's relating to everybody, and then it's relating to God. There's different areas of application of this humility. And in each of these areas, the application is a little bit different, but it's all an expression of humility. It's almost as if Peter is is helping the, the people, these scattered churches, really to see how humility ought to saturate and pervade all of our lives, whether it's to, to, to leaders or among each other or to the Lord. Humility ought to be manifest in everything that we do. Now before we dig into these verses, it would be good for us really to think about what humility is. What is humility? I think a, a good working definition is probably the best is Philippians 2 verse 3 which I read earlier. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind consider others as more important than yourself. In other words, it's not acting with accordance with your own desires and motives, but it is acting in accordance with the desire and heart of others to seek them. It's not a sour disposition. Humility isn't necessarily... It looks at yourself and, and sorrows and, and wallows in your sin and your muck. In very many ways, that's a prideful thing because you're focusing upon yourself. Whereas humility, by definition, is something which focuses on other people. It's not a grumbling self-deprecation. In fact, true humility demonstrates itself in happiness and joy because you're considering others more important than yourself and whatever you can do to make them happy and to serve them as they are happy, you are pleased and happy about doing it. Humility isn't a sorrowful countenance necessarily. Romans 12 verse 3 is a good perspective also. Though humility is not mentioned, it is the concept. For through the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. It's having a right view of yourself. 
And it's not thinking of yourself high. It's thinking of yourself as low and others as high. Humility, though, is best seen in action. That's where you understand it the best. The Bible gives us several pictures of it. The first one comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul. He's perhaps one of the most humble men ever to walk the planet. Though I know he wasn't the most humble. He was one of the most humble. He was extremely gifted, extremely talented, extremely disciplined, extremely zealous. When J. Oswald Sanders described Paul, he says, one who could speak in Peking in Chinese, quoting Confucius and Mencius, (laughs) Chinese philosophers, I, I know nothing about, well, very little about Confucius, except I'm confused, and Mencius, I don't know much about him. He could reason in Peking, quoting the Chinese scholars. He could write closely reasoned theology in English, in English and expound them in Oxford, the, the height of intellectual religiosity, and defend his case before the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Russian in Moscow. Such was Paul. He knew many languages. He was very gifted, very intelligent, very wise. And yet when Paul described himself, here's the words he used, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the very least of the saints. I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle. And though he had that that perspective of himself, he was eminently a happy, joyful man. So it wasn't this sorrowful perspective. He considered others more important than himself. I quoted last week from Paul's conversation to the elders at Miletus. He said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. My life's not about me. I I want to run the course that God has set before me, which is to to spend and be spent the labor of the church. When when, When facing death, he preferred to die, but said, for the sake of you, I will live on. He would want to die, that's what himself, but placing the interests of others above himself, he was with others. That's what he wanted. That's humility, not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Another example, this is Moses. I love the passage in Numbers 12, verse 3. It says, Now Moses, the man, was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. This verse is written in a context in which his brother and sister were arising. A complaint. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has He not spoken through us as well? You can see... Miriam and Aaron, like, like bringing attention to themselves. No, it's not just Moses, it's us. And Moses responded appropriately and humbly. In fact, shortly before that, when Eldad and Mildad were prophesying in the camp, others brought this disturbing news to Moses. These people are prophesying, and they're not going through you, Moses. You're the anointed, you're the touched of God. You're the one that speaks to God face to face. And he said, oh, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. See, Moses, though he was a great leader, was very willing to say, God, I am your vessel to be used as you want, and if you raise up others to be your voice, and it puts me down, wonderful. Who is that? I must decrease and he must increase. Who said that again? John the Baptist. That's a humble man. John the Baptist said that that my life is about a finger pointing to him. That's That's the whole purpose of my life is to point you to Christ. And when that purpose has been accomplished, I go away. Lifting up Jesus. That's what made him so great, by the way. Because he lifted up Christ. The best example of humility, though, is Christ himself, Jesus. We read in Philippians 2, Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, being made as a bondservant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That is, the highest of the high, Descending to the lowest of the low, being despised and rejected of men. That's humility. And certainly the greatest display of Christ's humility was the cross. There was no reason for Him to go to the cross. He had sinned in no ways. I mean, the cross for criminals, but He wasn't a criminal. He could have at any time gotten out of it and said, no, 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 let's put things straight. With a superior reasoning, He could have reasoned His way out of the cross, but He endured the cross. Why? Because he considered us as more important than himself. So that we might share in the riches, the inheritance, of the glories of Christ and of heaven. 
That's humility. It's a definition of humility. It's a demonstration. It's an example of that. He gave His life so that others might live. But the humility of Christ doesn't only display itself in death. He was a humble man. He said, I'm meek and lily of heart, Matthew 11. It also comes in the family He chose in which to be raised. I mean, think about it. Here's God Almighty saying, I can... Whoa. I could be part of that family. I could be part of this family. I could be part of this family. How about if I get part of um, a family who is um, rich and wealthy? He could have done that. Part of the aristocracy, right? Put me in line for the, for the kingship. He could have been influential. Give me the political leaders that I might come, that I might move and sway. And what did he do? He chose to come as the son of a carpenter, smack in the middle of the middle class. Such the humility of Christ. Throughout his entire life, he got a sense. Of, you get a sense of his dependence upon his heavenly Father. I mean, think about the things that Jesus said as he walked upon the earth. He said such things like this: "The Son can do nothing of himself. God does everything through me. I can of my own self do nothing. My judgment is just because I seek not mine own will. I seek not my own will. That's humility." I receive not honor from men. I mean, one of the ways of pride is to seek honor from men, to be lifted high. He says, I, I don't seek that. It's humility. He says, I came down from heaven not to do my own will. My doctrine is not mine. I am not come of myself. I do nothing of myself. Neither came I of myself, but sent me. I seek not my own glory. The words I speak unto you, I speak not from myself. The word which you hear is not mine. I mean, these are all in John's Gospel. I mean, just verse after verse after verse. You can pick them up in the notes when they come out Tuesday night. Just all the different things about, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. It's not, that's just the humility of Christ in the way He lived. The way He spoke. But it was even far more than even the way He spoke. Also in the way He served. He was, he was their leader of the disciples. And you remember how He served them, right? He had every respect for... He had every every ability, every right within Him to request that His disciples serve Him. But what did Jesus do? He served them. You remember the night when Jesus betrayed? He took the towel, girded Himself up, laid aside His garments, poured water into a basin, washed the disciples' feet. He wiped them with the towel which He was girded with. That was a lowly task. So low that Peter protested. Peter, the same one who wrote this, he says, "...never shall you wash my feet, Lord." In other words, Jesus, you're my Lord and Master. The washing feet is too low for you. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. That's only for the lowly servants to do. But Jesus prevailed. And then He said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. So I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The implication is this. If our Lord stooped to wash the feet of His disciples, who are we to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think? Well, with that as an introduction, let's just dig through our, our text this morning. Uh, I have three points this morning. They're simple, straight from the text. Point number one, verse 5a, submit yourselves. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Brings up a common theme in 1 Peter, that of submission. I remember speaking with a pastor who preached through 1 Peter, and he said, Steve, I think the theme of 1 Peter is submission. And of course, I told him he was wrong, right? Because the theme of Peter is suffer now, glory later, Right? Yeah, maybe I bring that up in every message, do I? I'm not sure. But so much so is submission. And I think about submission is, is an expression of humility. And, and, and think about this. If a pastor gets through First Peter preaching, he says that the key, the theme of First Peter is submission. You know, it may be humility is a big theme here as well. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your parents. Chapter 3, verse 1, Wise, be subject to your own husbands. I mean, all those verses speak about life as a Christian. We are not anarchists. We're called to submit to our authorities. Parents, you're called to submit children. 
You're called to submit to your parents, not the other way around. Okay, it is children to parents. That would be anarchy, all right? It's children to parents. Some places it is parents to children, and when that happens, it's bad news in the home. How many of you have seen that? Parents submitting to children. It is bad news. But we're called children to submit to your parents. Workers, you're called to submit to your bosses. Citizens, you're called to submit to the government. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands. And here in chapter 5, Peter's attention is focused on younger men. Be subject to your elders. Now, we see other places where that is to be true as well, in terms of everybody. There is authority in the church. The elders have the authority in the church. But here he's talking about younger men. And I think that there's a reason why Peter addresses young men particularly because I think that young men are those who are strong and self-sufficient and have no need, no want, no desire to submit to somebody older and more wiser than them because, with the truth be known, they are all wise and they are all knowing and they are all important. In fact, one of the most unteachable group of people in the world are new parents. I just put that before you. New parents often are most unteachable, but young men especially. J.C. Rao wrote in his little booklet, Thoughts for Young Men, How common is it to see young men heady, high-minded, and impatient of counsel? How often they are rude and uncourteous to all about them, thinking they are not valued and honored as they deserve. How often they will not stop to listen to a hint from an older person. They think they know everything. They are full of conceit of their own wisdom. They reckon elderly people, and especially their relations, stupid and dull and slow. They fancy they want no teaching or instruction themselves. They understand all things. It almost makes them angry to be spoken to. Like young horses, they cannot bear the least control. They must needs be independent and have their own way. They seem to think like those whom Job mentioned, we are the people and wisdom shall die with us. And all this, J.C. Ryle says, is pride. And then he gives a couple of examples. One of the examples is Rehoboam. You remember Rehoboam, son of Solomon, took over the kingdom after Solomon. And um, the people, particularly even the young people, came to him and said, Rehoboam, your father made our yoke hard. Now, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. In other words, they're coming in and they're saying, we will serve you on one condition, that you, you just ease up a little bit. Solomon was a little hard on us, just ease up and... And Rehoboam said, oh, let me think about it for three days. And so he called the old men in. The elders sought their counsel. And the old men says, if you'll be a servant today to this people and serve them and grant them their position, if you lighten up on them a little bit and speak good words to them, they will speak good words to them and they will be your servants forever. Lighten up, the old people say, and they will serve you forever. But he brought in the young men. He told them, thus you shall say to this people, you know, I'm not going to edit this because I think this is their attitude. My little finger is thicker than their father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's what he should say. And so who did Rehoboam follow? The elder or the younger? He followed the younger. And disaster came upon the land of Israel. Civil war ensued and Israel was never the same. Israel followed Jeroboam, a wicked, wicked, wicked man. Jeroboam was left with two tribes in the south, Judah and Simeon. Split the kingdom, always fighting with each other. Eventually they were cast off. Young men, be subject to your elders. Listen to their counsel. How many stories can be told of young men who forsook the counsel of parents and it ended up in great difficulties? How often has that happened, huh? How many are there who have the testimony of the prodigal son, wayward and rebellious in their youth, refusing their counsel of the elders, which led to disaster? And how many young men and young women have forsaken their parental advice, says, I'm old enough to do what I want to do, followed their own way only to find their life a mess. Listen, young men, young women, children, 
Be subject to your elders. Be subject to your parents. Listen to advice and accept instruction, as the proverb says, and in the end you'll be wise. Well, that's my first point. Subject yourselves. Submit yourselves. Um, let's turn to our second point. Humble yourselves. This is really the heart of the passage this morning. 5b through 6. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God has opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. We see really three, three phrases in here and they're all directing our attention to humility. But they, they focus a little bit different um, aspect of humility. The first one speaks about your attitude of humility. Clothing yourselves with humility. The second phrase talks about God's disposition towards the humble. He's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. We go from an attitude of God to a disposition. God's disposition towards you, and thirdly, is the result of humility. You will be exalted at the proper time. They're all calling us to a life of humility. They all give us reasons which to be humble, and they all give us different perspectives of that humility. So think about this first phrase. When he, when he says, clothe yourselves with humility, literally this word means to tie the apron of a slave around yourself. I forgot. I meant to bring today an apron. So you've got to put on your thinking caps, use your imagination. Think about taking an apron, putting it over my head, putting it, tying it together. You know, maybe like a, I don't know, some kind of silversmith or something like that. It's got stuff on it all over. I'm, I'm tying that and then I'm going to do my work. So God calls us all to do. To clothe ourselves with this, with this garment, this work, this work apron of a slave. And go and do about our work. And with this phrase, he's talking far more than the act of service. He's talking about the attitude of service as well. We're to consider ourselves as slaves in all humility. There's no self-pity in these words. There's no woe is me in these words. There's no sorrow at my station of life. Oh man, I'm a slave. I've got to take this thing on again, put it on again. He's not talking about that. He's talking about put it on because that's to what God has called you to, to be a slave and a servant of all. There's no expectation for others to take notice. There's no expectation of reward. There's no expectation of thanks. Rather, there's a delight and a realization that you're helping serve other people. Maybe you remember the story Jesus told about the humble slave. Jesus said, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep out there, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to them, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? Terrible. That's the way it was. But Jesus says, as bad as that is, so too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's humility. I'm an unworthy slave. I've simply done what I was called to do, and I did it. And doing it with joy, taking the apron of a slave, now, do you have any idea how hard this is? This is like brutal. We want to be served. We want pats on our back. We want to be recognized. We want others to see us as spiritual. But, but true humility doesn't even seek for those things. The truly humble person takes the apron of a slave, willingly serves others, not needing the recognition from other people, not needing the pats on the back. The pats on the back help, all right? But the humble person doesn't need those. And when God sees such an attitude, He's well pleased and brings a blessing. But for those who refuse to take that apron of a slave, He will oppose them. Right? Look at the next phrase. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. These words are a loose translation of Proverbs 3.34. The Proverbs are full of such quotes. I mean, there are many Proverbs that Peter could have quoted that speak the same thing about God is opposed to the proud, but... He is with the humble. And, and, and they come, as the Proverbs do, in many shapes and sizes and different angles to address them. Think about some of them. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. So dishonor on this side, wisdom on this side. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. Right? That which is poor and oppressed has nowhere else to turn but to God. Tearing down this side, building up this side. Proverbs 18.12 Before destruction, 
The heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. You've got honor over here, you've got destruction on this side to the proud. Proverbs 29:23. a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Listen, all these are the same idea, right? God's favor is bestowed upon the humble because they're low and God will lift them up. He will bless them. He will extend His grace to them. He will help them. But to the pride who are up, He will take down. Right? God's the one who perennially works and, and roots for the underdog. Brings them up. Those who are proud, He takes them down. If you're humble, you'll find wisdom, protection, and honor. If you're proud, you'll find dishonor, destruction, and abasement. The words Peter chose here. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's say it together. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's say it again. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, everyone. God is... Okay, turn to your neighbor. Turn and say, God is opposed to the proud. Here you go. God is... Let me ask you, which one of you want the opposition of God? John Piper says this, Nothing could be worse than to have an infinitely powerful and holy God opposed to you. I mean, there's nothing in this world that's worse than that. Uh, think about some comparisons. Maybe, maybe a presidential debate. I mean, it's, it's one thing for... A, presidential candidate to debate the other and they're opposed towards each other and they're going to seek to rip each other and tear each other down and to build each other up but, but that's nothing compared to debating with God Job kind of tried that it's one thing for a football team to play the reigning Super Bowl champs who are going to come out and going to smash you it's an entirely different thing to try to play football against God one thing to go into a war zone, Iraq, with enemies waiting to blow you up, IEDs or whatever they're called, but it's another thing to fight in war against God who's opposing you. And that's what you receive if you are proud. If you are proud, you will put on your boxing gloves and try to box against God because He is opposed to you. I don't think there are any of us who want that. On the flip side though, which of you want the favor of God in your life? I think we all do, right? Want the favor of God in our lives. John Piper says on the flip side, nothing could be better than to have an infinitely powerful and wise God treat us graciously. Nothing in this life could be better than the almighty and gracious caring God would treat us graciously. See, it's one thing for a conflict to take place at work with someone and you try to deal with it alone, but it's another thing when God comes alongside and helps you in that process. It's one thing for Satan's temptations to come upon you and you try to withstand alone. But it's another thing when God's grace comes through you and protects you and arms you against Satan's devices. But that'll be next week in verse 8. God's opposed to the proud gives grace to the humble. What do you want? You want the opposition of God or you want the favor of God? It's all your heart attitude that determines which side you're on, right? See, God is a little bit like the police. To the stranded motorist... The woo, 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 woo is a sign of welcome, relief, bring smile, help is on the way. But to the bank robber, the woo, 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 woo is like, they're after me, i got to run. It brings terror into the heart. And so likewise, if you're humble, the presence of God is pure delight and joy. If you're proud, the presence of God is utter terror. See, because God hates pride. He hates pride in your life. He hates pride in my life. Proverbs 6.17 identifies some things that the Lord hates. One of them is proud eyes that thinks highly of himself. A few chapters later, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. God hates the proud of heart. He will resist them and they will face turmoil all their days. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will surely not go unpunished. God's opposed to proud. Gives grace to the humble. You can choose. Do you want divine resistance? Or do you want divine assistance? 
There are plenty of biblical examples of pride. God's opposition doesn't take long to think about some. Think about Babel. Genesis 11. City increasing in number. When God had said, be scattered across the earth, be fruitful and multiply, they said, let us congregate and let us, as they said, build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves. And what did God do? He was opposed to them and He scattered them, confusing the language. God was opposed to those in Babel. He could trace histories of Judah and find many proud kings. In fact... Israel and Judah. Judah, I think, had uh, Israel had like 19 or 20 kings. I forget which one. 19, I think. And all their kings were bad. All of them were prideful. Judah at least had some hope, some good kings in them, but many of them were prideful as well. There are at least six, at least five kings I found who the Old Testament explicitly says their heart was proud. But I'm sure you could find traces of others. Amaziah, Azariah, Hezekiah, Ammon, and Zedekiah, all of whom the Bible explicitly says we're proud of heart. But no king shows as much pride as did Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the most powerful nation in the world. And what was his downfall? Pride. There was a day when he was walking on the, the roof of his palace in Babylon and he looked out and he said, Is this not the great city Babylon which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might and power and the glory of my majesty? And what happened to him? While the very word was in the king's mouth, God came, rebuked him, said, King Nebuchadnezzar, today sovereignty has been removed from you. Remember, he went out, dwelt seven years, the beast of the field, until he finally humbled himself to recognize that God is the ruler of all mankind. And only after he humbled himself did, did Nebuchadnezzar write, he prays the king of heaven because all his works are true, his ways are just, he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar stands a great model for those who are proud and who God will humble. King Herod reigned over Israel in the days of the apostles. At one point, he put on his royal apparel and he sat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. And so majestic was his speech and and so great and glorious was his appearance that the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not a man! The voice of a God and not a man! following him. He's just eloquent. He's, he's stately. He's majestic. He's lifted high. He's royal. He's a god. He's not a man. And Herod could have said, no, that's not it. That is not it at all. Rather, he did not glorify God. And so God struck him. Acts 12:23. The angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten by worms and died right there. Right as he was speaking. God's opposed the proud. Other examples abound. The Pharisees, they're proud of their religious achievements. Men and women of Israel were proud. They faced the curse of God. Nations like Edom and Moab were proud. And they all faced the hand of God against them. But listen, as much as God is opposed to the proud, God looks with favor upon the humble. Isaiah 66, verse 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God the idea there is it's not just looking and seeing like, oh, I, I, okay, yeah, that, that guy, I see him. <laughs> like he doesn't see other people. No, he says, I'm going to look with divine favor upon those who are humble and contrite of spirit and who tremble at his word. See, God loves the humble of heart. He'll help them. And they will go through life with a helping hand of God. How important is it for us to be humbled? I, mean, I think back to my recent sermon series I preached, the greatness of God in the stars, the greatness of God on the earth, the greatness of God in our salvation. All of that was to humble you so that you would say, God, you are great so that you receive divine blessing. That's the aim of those messages. We need to be humble people, right? Throughout the Bible, there are those who are humble. I've mentioned Moses and Paul and Jesus already, all of whom were humble and received the mighty blessing of God upon their life, but there are more. I think about Ruth and Hannah and Mary. Ruth went back to this foreign land and told her, her mother-in-law, your people should be my people and your God should be my God. That's a great act of humility to follow her, her mother-in-law back to Israel. Or Hannah pleaded with God, begged with God for a child. And she prayed Psalm 119. 
113, 121 rather. Which one of those? 113. She prayed 113. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. God, that's true of my life. You've, you've raised the poor from the dust. You've exalted me because I've been humble. Mary spoke about how the Lord has had regard for the humble state of His bond, bond slave. God looked with favor upon her because she was humble. There were humble kings like David, a man after God's own heart. One of the great displays of his humility was when, when Absalom had taken over the city and he was walking out and there's this guy on the hill, Shimmy, and he was throwing rocks at him and, and cursing him. He says, get out! Get out, you dead dog, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. And Abishai, David's friend, was, let's cut off his head, off with his head, let's get him! And David's response shows humility. I mean, imagine, this guy's throwing rocks at you and cursing you on the way out. You've just been defeated. You're down and he's pressing you lower. I mean, this is equivalent of, we, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. You know, you're getting crushed and the crowd is against you and here's Shimmy just smashing him. And David says, if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, who shall say, why have you done so? Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. <laughs> you know what? If, if God has said that, I, I just need to take it. And, and maybe God will look upon my affliction. Maybe God will look upon my affliction and exalt me someday and be kind to me. There were humble kings like Solomon who didn't ask for wealth but asked for wisdom. Humble kings like Joseph Ad who feared the Lord and Joash who listened to the counsel of Jehoiada and Manasseh who humbled himself greatly before the Lord or Josiah who reformed Judah. As soon as he found the book of the law, was, he, 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 ripped his heart and re, he ripped his clothes in repentance and said, oh, and said, let's follow the law. All these men received grace from the Lord because they were humble. Now, what do you want to be? you want to receive the opposition of the Lord or do you want to believe, receive the favor of the Lord? Because the favor is good. Let's look at verse 6. says, right, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Now we don't know when the proper time is. I don't think it refers to one time. It could have been He may exalt you at the return of Christ like it talks about in verse 4. I think the proper time might be different for every single one of us in every different circumstance because there are blessings that come after, after you endure the trial, as James says. You receive wisdom and endurance. To be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Every trial you go through, God brings you through that. There is grace at the other end. Or maybe He'll exalt you when you die with a, a glorified body, welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. And, and maybe even there's a bigger sense at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all the church is wed to Christ on that day, we will surely be exalted in that day. It's a result of our humility. Isn't it interesting here in verse 6? Suffer now, glory later comes there, even though those words aren't even close. You humble yourself, you face the, the pain and disgrace or whatever that means, and at the proper time, God, God will lift you up. There'll be glory later, though there's suffering now. We may not know when or how we'll be exalted. The promise of humiliation is exaltation. Just as pride goes before destruction, so also does humility go before exaltation. Just how it works. So what do you want? Destruction or exaltation? I don't think there's anybody here who says, I want to be destroyed. I don't think there's anybody here, right? But it begs the question, okay? And, and this is kind of a preview to our flocks tonight. How are you going to get that done? How are you going to be humble? See, because humility is a, a very delicate thing. It's a little bit like the word silence. What's interesting about the word silence is it's so delicate that to say it is to break it. And with humility, to claim it is to lose it. It's hard. Humility is hard. Because we can deceive ourselves. We can easily detect pride in others, entirely miss it in ourselves. I mean, if, if ever there was a case 
that's true about detecting a speck in a brother's eye and missing the log in your own eye? It is with this issue of pride and humility. I mean, think about it, okay? You just think in your mind, do you know somebody who's prideful? Think of somebody in your mind. One person who's prideful. And half of you might be thinking about me. And that is fine, because you're right. But does anyone have difficulty thinking about someone who's proud? Now, what about yourself? Do you think of yourself as proud? I remember a time before I was married, I spent the summer with a college group of students with like an intense discipleship training kind of program. And at one point, I forget exact context, but we had... Um, some sheets of paper that were, uh, you know, basically evaluating ourselves and our character and evaluating others. And so we had a group of probably about a dozen of us or so, and I, don't, I can't remember how many. We, I think maybe I, I rated a couple other people, and I rated myself, I like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Good. How, how am I doing with those? And, you know, there are also things like uh, compassion and uh, thankfulness. How, how am I doing on that? And humility was one of those things. And, you know, as I ranked myself, I ranked myself pretty high on the humility spectrum. And when the papers came back, you know which one was like the absolute worst? You got it. Humility was totally shocking to me. I had no idea that others thought of me as prideful. I had no idea. I remember talking with a pastor about it. He gave me some material to read, helped me some skills interacting with people, helped me to, to not draw attention to myself and tried to show me some ways to help. And he did help me. But here's what taught me. We can easily be deceived when we think about our own humility. I remember a time early in our marriage. I was in graduate school. And I came home from class. And I got in a good grade. And uh, I showed Yvonne my good grade. And I said, Yvonne, look at here. I got this good grade. And I... I don't remember exactly the words, but it's probably something like this. Yvonne, this class is so easy. I'm just, I'm just doing really well. In the class. But you know what? There are other people in the class. Boy, they're finding it really, really hard. And um, boy, I just, I'm just finding it really easy. And I remember you, you broke down and you even cried because of my pride and where I was. And I think where I was headed. And I was totally blindsided. I had no idea that that was true in my life. Had, had zero idea that was true. I'm just telling you this because we can easily deceive ourselves when we think about our own humility. But you know what? Everybody can recognize it. Everyone can recognize the pride of Ricky Henderson who hands up, holds up third base and the humility of Nolan Ryan who gets mobbed by his people almost embarrassingly. Everyone can recognize it except ourselves, because the heart is more deceitful than all else is desperately sick, and who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. I've been told over the years how proud I am. I see my pride. Many measures, I don't see my pride, but I know it's there, and I I say, I want to change. I I want to be a humble pastor. I suspect you want to be humble as well. So how how are we going to do this? If we cannot detect our own pride, but others can, What should we do? How should we figure this out? Anybody have a suggestion here? Yeah, what, Nathan? Yeah, exactly. How about we ask somebody? So here's your assignment. Married folks, before next week, I want you to ask your wife or your husband, honey, can you identify in me evidences of my humility? And can you identify in me evidences of pride? Can you do that for me? Please, I want to be a humble person. Now, before you ask, now, by the way, kids, you're not off of this. It'd be good for you maybe to ask your parents, how do you see humility in me and how do you see pride in me? Before you ask your spouse, husbands, wives, you might have to do some preparation depending upon where your relationship is. I would suggest you do some things like maybe express your love for your spouse first. 
Maybe express your commitment to your spouse. Honey, I love you, and it doesn't matter what you say, I'm still going to be committed. I'm not going to get angry with you in any way whatsoever, but I really want to grow in my godliness. And you need to realize, you know me better than I know you, and I have areas of blindness I, I can't even see. Can you please help me, and can you please tell me? I promise that I will not defend myself. I promise that whatever you say, I will take. I promise that I will pray over those things. You may want to spend some time praying before you have a conversation. You certainly should pray after you have a conversation. You might want to give your spouse time to think about it. Maybe today on the ride home, when you're riding home, and say, what did you think of Steve's sermon? <laughs> I could have done better than Steve did. That's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you can have your conversation, but you might say, you know what, honey, when, how, about, how about we talk about these things Thursday night? So I think about our schedule this week, Thursday night. So you do some thinking. You write some things down. I'll do some thinking. I'll write some things down. And let's talk about it Thursday night. Give some preparation to this thing. Well, I've had conversations recently. I had a conversation with my wife about things last night. Asked her about areas in my life where I've been prideful, seeking areas to improve. And she, <laughs> you'll find this, men and women, your spouse will go gentle on you until they really see that you won't respond badly and then maybe they'll dig further and further. So if you respond well on the, the easy things, maybe next time she'll go a little deeper. And if you respond well on the deep, maybe she'll go a little bit deeper and deeper. I don't think, this is just encouragement for you, I don't think she's going to go for your heart on the very first thing, okay? I don't think she's going to chop off your head. I think, she, I think she or he, I think they'll tread lightly at first. See how things go. But what a wonderful thing it would be if marriage relationships were such that there's a complete honesty, openness, and love and commitment towards one another that these things could be shown and displayed all the time and talked about all the time. And Yvonne's comments to me are good. I, I know of areas I need to change and improve. I need to speak with some of my kids about some things. She talked to me last night. I just encourage you to do that. I think, I think about flocks tonight. We're going to gather in two homes. We'll be in the Dirk's home. We'll be in the Landman's home. And uh, one of the things that uh, I think is really helpful is I have, I've printed this out. <clears throat> it's called something, The 50 Fruits of Pride by Brent Detweiler. We read this in our prayer meeting. 50 Manifestations of Pride. Maybe this would be a good document for you all to go over with your husbands and wives. I'll just read some of them for you. I, I want to be well-known or important. That's pride. I want to be well-known. If I'm sinfully competitive, if I've always got to win, if I want to impress people, I want them to see my accomplishments, let them be known. If, if I want to draw attention to myself, if I'm the center of attention, that's pride. It's a fruit of pride. Number five, I like to talk about myself. That's pride. If I'm deceptive about myself, I'm lying to preserve my reputation. That's pride. If I desire recognition and credit, that's pride. If I'm not excited about serving others and making them successful, that's pride. Self-sufficiency. If, if I live just to myself, that's pride. If I'm anxious, that's pride. If I'm self-focused... If I tend to replay in my mind well, how I did and what I said and how I came across, that's pride. If I fear men, that's pride. If I'm insecure, that's pride. If I compare myself to others, that's pride. I want to do better than they are. If I'm self-critical perfectionist, that's pride. Because I can't stand things that are wrong in me because it reflects poorly for others. If I'm self-serving, that's pride. If I feel better or superior, that's pride. If I think highly of myself, that's pride. If I credit myself for who I am, what I accomplish. If I'm self-righteous, that's pride. It goes on and on, 50 of them. The good news is this, is that I emailed this to all of you this morning who are on the Weekly Word. You have no excuse. This would be a great document to go over. And uh, flock leaders, this might be a good document maybe to go over tonight. Because the main point, the main thrust tonight is going to be 
in some sense, there's freedom. I guys want to do that. Okay, Darren, you can do it however you want. But the main thrust got to be this. Are we humble? Maybe, maybe even maybe separate men's and women, husband and wives. Kind of give them away in the different house. Give them some time to maybe start talking about some of these things and say, how are you humble? Because our heart in these flo- is, this flocks this fall is just to say, how are you applying these things in your life? How are you applying them? important for us. I think there's no greater need for us than to be humble. Well, that's a plug for our small groups tonight that are going to meet. That's a plug for marriages. It's a plug for everything. So, My last point, it's real simple. Casting all your anxiety in Him because He cares for you. Cast yourselves. It's how we demonstrate our ability before the Lord. It's just to throw all our worries and all our struggles to Him and trust Him to help us. And perhaps a battle for you is going to be how your spouse responds. You need to cast all your anxiety upon the Lord. I love John Piper when he preached in this passage. His, his message was entitled, Are you humble enough to be carefree? Are you humble enough to be carefree? Because the truly humble person casts all upon God and is carefree. That's exactly how Jesus lived. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. In His humility... While he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the greatest time of humiliation, suffering naked upon a cross, he entrusts himself to God. And I think we can trust ourselves to God with all anxieties of our life. Well, we're going to finish our service today by Andy's going to come and sing a solo uh, upon these things. And then you'll be dismissed right afterwards. And maybe some of you have some talking to do with your spouse. Andy, why don't you come? not in trying but in trusting not in running but in resting not in wandering but in praying that we find the strength of the Lord I can do all things Through Christ who gives me strength But sometimes I wonder what He can do through me No great success to show No glory on my own Yet in my weakness He is there To let me know His strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry on. Raised in His power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. His strength is perfect. We can only know the power that He holds when we truly see how deep our weakness goes. His strength in us begins where ours comes to an end. He hears our humble cry and proves again. His strength is perfect 
when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry on. Raised in His power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. His strength is perfect. Raised in His power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. His strength is perfect. No, it's not in trying but in trusting, not in running, but in resting, not in wandering, but in praying, that we find the strength of the Lord. Enjoy your Lord's Day together.